This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, as we record this week's episode, I imagine that many of you, like me, are experiencing a degree of sadness, even grief, as events unfolded in Washington, D.C. last Thursday. Our recent past and this election cycle in particular have highlighted divisions in our nation. They may not be fully known and certainly not fully understood. We are blessed to live in a democratic republic with a representative government composed of elected individuals. Reason should lead us to be supremely grateful under the rule of law and peaceful transfer of power. We can fully rely upon the assumption of office by those individuals duly elected. This trust is a hallmark of self-governance in our great nation and fundamental to its resiliency. It is my hope that each of us esteem our form of governance above one's preferred candidate. As we begin a new era in our government with President Biden's administration in a Democratic-controlled Congress, as a health industry, we must be steadfast in our commitment to value-based care. In this week's episode, we are speaking with Andrew Croshaw, the Chief Executive Officer of Levitt Partners, on the future of value-based care, 2021 and beyond. Andrew's insights, informed by the leading-edge healthcare value economy research and intelligence from Levitt Partners, will provide you with the best policy analysis out there on this race to value. In this episode, we'll provide an extensive analysis on the future of value-based care. As Governor Levitt states each week at the beginning of our show, our nation has a duty to provide the best possible health care for every citizen. We then must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. The value-based care movement has the potential to achieve both of these aims through the advancement of alternative payment models and patient-centered care delivery. We are truly in a race to make value-based care work now more than ever. This is not only an economic imperative, it's a moral one as well. The seismic shift needed to transform our industry will only happen if we have spirited collaboration and moral purpose to do what is right. Fixing healthcare will save lives. It will improve the health of our communities. 
and it will create opportunity through economic prosperity, as well as give our children a better country. The time is now. The triple aim, lower per capita health costs, better outcomes, and an improved patient experience is a bipartisan issue. Let's learn more from Andrew today as he sets us straight on where we are headed in this new political environment. And if you want to learn more about the future of value after hearing today's episode, please refer to the intelligence brief released this week by the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative for more in-depth analysis. Andrew, welcome to Race to Value. Eric, thank you. Glad to be with you. Before we get into the policy specifics of our discussion today, Andrew, I wanted to ask you to reflect on the recent violence at our nation's capital. This insurrection is not unlike 9-11 in that the call to action for healing and reconciliation is on everyone's mind. That day of sadness reminds us how fragile our society is and how much we need civility and bipartisanship to reunite our country. As we are just a few days away from inaugurating a new administration, I am left to wonder if President Biden can capitalize on this historic moment of unrest to unite our country with a value-based care policy agenda. While we can all certainly disagree on how to go about fixing the business of healthcare, as we've observed through the repeal and replace debate over the last decade, it does seem that we must realize that the levers of the value equation are immutable aims for our country. We do need lower cost, improved patient outcomes, and a better experience. So, Andrew, given that value-based care is seemingly a bipartisan concept, does the new administration have an opportunity to reshape the health policy debate in a bipartisan way? What strategies will the Biden administration employ to advance the principles of value-based care over the next four years, especially given the recent outcome of the Georgia runoff election tipping control of the Senate to Democrats? Thank you, Eric. Thanks for inviting me to just comment on what happened on January 6th. I found myself, as the news broke on that day, really struggling to focus on the meetings and the conversations that needed to happen to get to the end of the day. It really was challenging my sense of where boundaries are and what's possible in this country. And as the evening wore on, I found myself trying to share some thoughts with the, our team at Levitt Partners. I had this this desire to connect and be connected with those that I'm close to at that time. And I'll tell you, as we shared some thoughts internally, I, I came to realize that others were feeling that same need for connection. You mentioned the term civility, and there's a lot of blame to go around for the incivility that has characterized you know, our recent circumstances. And so this isn't about one person, but I will say that in psychology, observations have been made that within social groups, when leaders or those that are held in high esteem in a culture behave in an uncivil way and they get away with it, then that behavior is modeled and, and gets adopted. And we have been witness to that in our national dialogue. We've seen that right from the very top of our national leadership. And that approach of incivility in our communication and in our actions has been aided by something that didn't exist in generations past, which is social media at the individual level. But it's also been aided by mainstream media, 
which has really seen a dwindling in its credibility. So you, you, you put a leader of our country behaving uncivilly with the tools of social media in the hands of many, and then a mainstream media that amplifies. And this is what we get. And I hope and believe that this may become a moment for some reflection and some change. We certainly know we're going to have a change in our leader, but the tools of social media remain and the influence of the media remains. And we have a whole bunch of other leaders in Congress, in the administration and at the state and local level. And so collectively, it remains to be seen how we're all going to deal with this. I have some hope that this is going to be a moment of some renewal. As it relates to the Biden administration, their priorities probably aren't changed by what happened on the 6th. Uh, certainly the election outcomes that also happened on the 6th, by coincidence, will change some of the pathways and some of the ways that those policy agenda, that, that policy agenda could be accomplished through Congress. But they'll move forward. And I have confidence that the Biden administration will do everything they can to advance their agenda independent of any bipartisanship. But there will also be elements of that agenda that need to be bipartisan. And what we've seen in the election outcomes probably allows that bipartisanship to, I think, to exist. I mean, even though Senate is technically in control now of Democrats, we're only talking about two more votes than they previously had. So really, those centrist senators will have a disproportionate influence in policy that actually gets passed. And that probably suggests opportunities for some sort of more temperate health policy agreement, what we might think of as bipartisan. Of course, with control of the Senate, the Senate Democrats will also have a tool that they wouldn't have otherwise had, and that's to use a, a tool called reconciliation, really focused on passing budget and financial related pieces of legislation. They'll be able to pass some of that legislation on their own because of the, the 50 votes they now have and the ability to break any ties with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. So that will be a new tool that will be in place. But I, I don't expect that it will be used to advance um, any meaningful legislation. So I'm encouraged for a sense of bipartisanship, maybe based on what, what we saw and what we learned and how precious and fragile I think we realize that uh, stability in our country is. So anyway, those are some of my thoughts as we kick this off. I, I hope it's consistent with yours. I hope there's a sense of hope that you feel, as I do. I think there are a lot of things to be hopeful about as it relates to bipartisanship and, and, and policy, and I'm sure we'll get into the, some of them as we talk further. Andrew, thanks for that response. I want to follow this topic of hope and reflect on the year of 2020. We know that the coronavirus pandemic has disrupted all corners of the healthcare system and its long-term packs are still unknown. The industry has faced unprecedented challenges in 2020 due to COVID, with provider organizations being among those hardest hit by the pandemic, both financially and clinically, as well as operationally and even spiritually. So over the last 10 months, the delivery system has worked heroically to expand capacity, creatively re redesign staffing models and workflows, and to adopt new virtual solutions to reach patients and caregivers all while facing these drastic drops in revenue, PPE shortages, and a patient population that's plagued with misinformation about the seriousness and the spread mm -hmm. of the virus. Despite the challenges and the ongoing uncertainty regarding the pandemic, industry experts and policymakers agree that 
COVID-19 has only emphasized the need for significant payment and delivery transformation, showcasing the advantages of prospective non-fee-for-service-based alternative payment models, coupled with new regulatory flexibilities, technological innovations, and cultural shifts to fast-track that adoption. So how has the adoption of value-based contracts been impacted by the pandemic so far? And in your mind, how might it impact provider adoption of these payment arrangements going forward? It's a great question. As you both know, Levitt Partners has been monitoring both public and private sector adoption of value-based contracts for quite a while. And we began that tracking just with risk-bearing organizations that we loosely define as ACOs, but have since expanded that to include other types of value-based arrangements, episodes of care, types of ACO arrangements that may be in in specialty areas, in in post-acute care, in areas like cancer and so forth. And what we know from the ongoing tracking is that value-based contracts continued in 2020 despite the pandemic. And I'm really encouraged by that. I mean, so much attention, rightly so, and focus at the delivery system level has been on treatment of individuals and, and preparation and protection of caregivers and so forth. But we've really seen a lot of private sector activity focused in this space. Bundles is one of them, specialty ACO models, as I mentioned, and as well, traditional ACO contracts. A big part of that in 2020 has been Medicare Advantage, which as a segment continues to grow significantly. And we're going to see that continue in 2021. Literally hundreds of new Medicare Advantage plans will be offered. Those plans are turning out to work well for beneficiaries. They're turning out to work well for plan sponsors. And so we'll continue to see that grow. But those plans also create a nice platform for organizations, for payer sponsors, and also for providers to do value-based care if they choose. It's really a strategic choice. It's not inherently necessary in an MA environment to do that, but increasingly plan sponsors are choosing to do those kinds of things. So I'm really encouraged by that. Clearly, large employers have been advocates of value-based care, but only the largest of them have actually been able to do much experimentation just because of the sort of the organizational lift that's required to do that. I expect we'll continue to see some of that. And because so many employers have been negatively affected by the pandemic, I expect sort of the voice or the call among employers for continued value-based payment will, will only grow louder. But as for those that are actually doing things about it, they really, most employers actually have to wait until an offering is provided to them for them to be able to, to do that. I'm really invigorated by kinds of startups and other growing business models out there who who can bring those kinds of opportunities to large employers. And I expect we'll see more of that, not necessarily in 2021, we will, but it's going to take a couple of years, I think, for those models to mature. So that'll be exciting to see as well. The coronavirus pandemic has made major waves in the primary care market causing significant financial hardship for many practices while offering growth opportunities for others. On one hand, the majority of independent physician practices struggled to survive as outpatient visits abruptly plummeted, leading to substantial reductions in FFS revenue. According to Health Affairs, in research written last year from researchers out of Harvard Medical School, primary care practices, Andrew, were slated to lose $15 billion because of the COVID pandemic. I just have to think, if there is any silver lining to this pandemic, 
It's that it's underscored the importance of capitated contracts, wherein providers assuming risk end up getting paid even as utilization dries up. We see that advanced primary care organizations whose very business models are built on full risk value-based care, like ChinMet, who was featured on last week's show, Oak Street, and Iora Health, and others, they've performed really well in 2020 despite adverse operating conditions associated with the pandemic. So Andrew, as we see many fee-for-service dependent primary care organizations struggling to stay afloat, do you think the promise of high-touch, full-risk primary care organizations will be an important driver of value transformation and an influencer of health policy reform in the years to come? I absolutely do. And this is such an exciting area of innovation. To start off with, I think one of the key storylines of 2020, and you mentioned this, has been sort of this bifurcation of primary care. Those organizations that had risk-based arrangements who carried the risk financially weathered the storm quite well, whereas those that were waiting for -for fee-for-service-based, visit-based payment, procedure-based payment, just didn't have the volume. They couldn't get the volume. And as a consequence, and many primary care organizations to begin with are not uh, highly capitalized. So it became very difficult for those organizations. And and in in a way, one of the benefits of, of 2020 was that it did highlight the benefit to the primary care providers of taking risk. I will say, though, I'm a little afraid of what it also signaled to payers. Payers have historically been reluctant to part with that risk, to share that risk with providers. And those payers who haven't shared risk probably were really glad that they hadn't shared that risk because as you saw in the performance results of the publicly traded payers and and what we know from those who are privately held, they actually had a really good financial year if they were holding the risk. So I'm not sure we can say coming out of 2020 that payers are super excited to share risk based on what happened. But what I am excited about is the emergence of these primary care organizations that have the capability to organize both proactive and reactive systems to interact with consumers and really effectively manage risk. It's been said in the past that this up-and-coming generation of providers didn't want to work in an independent practice setting. They, They wanted the security of employment, and so many of them we're happy to walk into these arrangements with health systems and hospitals who, who could provide them the security of employment and, frankly, a better life than, than that which they would find in a fee-for-service environment that required so much of the hamster wheel. Well, now we have a new type of employer that's out there that's not a health system, but that can also provide that security, can also provide the quality of life, but has an asset light orientation that health systems just struggle to have because of their DNA, because of what drives their business model. And that's the Chen Meds that you talked about, Oak Streets and, and others. Village MD is another example. And I, I really expect that these types of business models are going to lead this transformation because those business models are just asset light. And that's really going to be the name of the game. It's going to be partially driven by policy, but just also the economics that we're going to face over the next several years in this country are going to be putting pressure 
on our traditional reimbursement system. And so aside from any policy, just the economics of the reimbursement environment of the economic environment, I think are really going to encourage growth in these types of business models. And that's exciting. I mean, it's exciting in the sense that it means real change. And I expect that that will compel change at every level, not just with the high-touch primary care providers, but it will compel change as health systems seek to be competitive, especially those that own plan assets and, and other traditional payers who will also be adapting to it based on the mandate that, that this represents. Andrew, I love that response. And along those lines, you know, if we also think of the impact that that'll have on hospitals and health systems, we know that hospitals also experienced great financial distress in 2020. They had elective procedures that were put on hold. Outpatient department visits were reduced dramatically. As with physicians and physician practices, adopting global capitation could also be seen more favorably by hospital and health system leaders compared to their pre-pandemic perceptions. But we know that also some health systems are seeing this as a time to move away from value-based contracts. Recently, a Harvard Business Review article cited a hospital CEO that said, we plan to jettison as many risk contracts as we can over the next two years. Unfortunately, it does seem that many health systems still continue to cling to a fee-for-service model because it's easily understood. The cost and volume profit structure aligns well with how the rest of the market works. And in contrast, a value-based delivery system requires in-depth understanding of patient populations on an individual level, proactively embracing social determinants of health and really altering who, what, when, where, and, and the how of care delivery. So as we look to the future of value-based care, do you think that healthcare leaders will seek the easier, well-established path versus the harder, more difficult road of care delivery design? Or will health systems widely realize that care can become, as you're saying, more virtualized and procedures invariably shift more and more into ambulatory settings and create this asset light business model that you're, that you're mentioning that really emphasizes ambulatory care and consumerism and cost transparency. What role will health policy play in the coming years as well to move hospitals and health systems towards that asset light value centric business model? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's so much to talk about. But just to start off, you've got, you know, you're starting 2021 and many hospitals are in a very difficult financial place, still don't have volumes back. And in 2020, depending on what the pandemic was doing in their region, they may have had some kind of restart in what would be their traditional mix of services. But right now, given where the pandemic is, it's growing in almost every state. We have new variants of the virus that can be up to 50% more contagious. And we now have a third variant, well, I should say a second variant, but a third type of virus that we know very little about that may turn out to be resistant to some antibody treatments. So we should expect that at least the first half of 2021 is going to remain financially challenging for health systems that rely upon high volume and a number of elective procedures because it's going to be COVID treatment focus. That said, you talk about announcements of some organizations getting out of value-based contracts. I think we should expect this. This is what happens when industries transition. Not everyone transitions. And it really becomes a question of who has the right perspective on the timing of the transition. Because transitioning too early can be just as poor a decision 
as not transitioning. And so I think you have leaders out there who are looking at their market, who are looking at their business and a whole series of dynamics, and they're trying to make a, a decision about whether and when to make that transition. And that's that happens in other industries too. We're watching this happen right now in the electrification of vehicles, where you've got some major automakers who are saying, we're not going down this path. And they're doubling down on continuing to make internal combustion engines efficient. And you've got others who have basically have said, we, we won't make an internal combustion engine after X year in the future. They will either be all hybrid or they will all be electric. So not everybody's doing the same thing there. And that's what's going to happen in healthcare too. What is so difficult for leaders right now is predicting that timing. Because timing isn't something that you get to choose. You get to choose your organizational readiness, but you don't get to choose the market readiness. And what's hard to judge right now is what impact will the COVID economy have on the move to value? What impact will it have on the exhaustion of the Medicare trust fund? And what will the policy response be to that exhaustion of that trust fund? If you picture our environment, let's say three to five years from now, and sometime in that period, the trust fund is going to go bankrupt. If our economy is in a tough place at that time, it's going to be difficult for Congress to raise taxes as the solution to that. So they'll be looking to promote other kinds of solutions. And there are a number of them that will be available to them at that time. But the point is, all of that is going to affect the timing of this transition. And it's just not easy for leaders to plan their own organizational transition in light of some of these uncertainties. So what is encouraging about 2020, though, is this total embrace of virtual care. And all of us had been in many conversations around the industry about how patients didn't want to do it and how it wasn't a good medium to do good diagnostics and to provide good therapy decisions um, and so forth. And what we've seen really is that not only have consumers abided it, in large measure, they prefer it. And so that's super exciting and will hopefully embolden some providers to continue moving down that path and some policymakers to continue to encourage that path. But I will tell you that policymakers will always be reluctant to encourage virtual care pathways until we move to value-based care, because otherwise they are just going to be concerned that virtual care is going to promote volumes that will drive cost in ways that maybe aren't even good for patients and hard to detect from a fraud and overuse perspective. But once you get into value-based care contracts, many of those concerns die down and it really becomes a strategy question, not a policy or reimbursement question, a strategy question for the delivery system as to how they use those tools to provide the best possible outcomes for patients at the lowest possible cost. And so that's that's super exciting. The patients have responded well to the shift. I think regulatory changes will have taken several giant leaps forward as it relates to virtual care because of the pandemic. And, and those things portend well for the future. And I think the Biden administration, as it relates to policy, is is messaging and is showing in their actions that value will be an important tool for them. Their definition of value will be unique to their time and place, as it was in the Trump administration, as it was in the Obama administration. Because of the of the national conversation and awareness that we have around 
um, health disparities and around social justice, those will factor as large definitional components of what they what value means to them. And also, more traditionally, another definitional component of a Biden administration value definition will be out-of-pocket costs for consumers. Republicans are more likely to look for transparency and consumer incentives as important levers in driving value. Democratic administrations, and this one will be, I think, quite similar and quite in line, will look to regulatory levers, mandatory payment levers, and will be less inclined to patient out-of-pocket costs be part of the solution or, or grow further. So I don't think that's where the administration will, will look as much. I do see this administration, though, also looking at the social determinants of health as elements of value. And we'll likely see uh, more experiments coming out of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and policies that support further kinds of experiments there. Andrew, we should also talk about post-acute care providers and how they'll evolve in the future of value-based care. That is really the next frontier in controlling Medicare spending as it is the largest driver of overall cost variation. It just doesn't seem that SNFs are likely to become major direct partners in value-based purchasing contracts as risk-bearing providers will continue to focus on post-acute care optimization by minimizing SNF utilization in favor of lower cost settings like home health, putting further pressure on the industry. Home health has really seen a surge in adoption and innovation in 2020 driven by necessity due to COVID restrictions. Additionally, tech enablement through in-home health monitoring continues to be used to manage chronic conditions and risk-bearing providers will leverage these in-home technological advancements to deliver even more services in this convenient lower cost setting. And CMS is also advancing the shift to home-based care through its recent kidney care APMs, which incentivize home-based dialysis, like the kidney choices or KCC model, the ESRD treatment choices or ETC model, and also the hospital at home waiver, which allows patients to receive hospital level care outside of the hospital setting. And then you have hospice and palliative care providers who are also seeing more opportunities for innovation and value-based involvement, such as how we're seeing them partner with MA plans through the value-based insurance design model. So Andrew, how do you see the post-acute care landscape evolving over time as the value-based care movement matures and new APMs are implemented and ACOs become more effective in integrating post-acute care in their population health management strategy? So much change here. If you're in this space, I would characterize your environment as dangerous and dynamic. And I, I don't mean that from a patient care standpoint. I mean that from a business standpoint. And there is a place, no question in my mind, for skilled nursing facilities in the future of healthcare, including in the future of value-based payment. The challenge, however, is that there's innovation going on upstream from them in the hospital, and there's innovation going on downstream from them in home care environments. And as we've already talked about in primary care and population health. And the, the scary thing for a skilled nursing provider is that in theory, in a risk-based environment, whereas you already pointed out, cost can be high and cost can be uneven. There are significant efforts that are made to discharge patients directly to home and to manage through home health or through other kinds of services delivered in the home to avoid the expense profile and potentially get the same kinds of health outcomes. 
that's super dangerous if you're in a skilled nursing model. In theory, however, if hospitals are in value-based payment arrangements, then they should be looking to get people out of the hospital and into a skilled nursing facility that are too complex and too fragile to be at home, but don't need to be in a hospital environment that's more expensive than a SNF. And so if everything works smoothly, you just have patients that are today in a SNF be at home and patients that are today in a hospital be in a SNF. And then the hospitals have to figure out how to rework and reuse the footprint that they have to basically get more asset light. The problem is things don't work smoothly like that because everyone has different contractual arrangements. Each organization may be pursuing its own strategy with its own timing. So it's very possible for a SNF to be caught where people are bypassing the SNF entirely, where hospitals are not relinquishing the patients that they should because possibly they don't have the contracts that would cause them to do that. So very dangerous and very dynamic. If I'm a SNF provider in 2021 and beyond, I think I want to be diversifying my services across the post-acute care spectrum, having hospice as part of my offerings, having home-based care, home health as part of my offerings, so that I then am in a position to be a great negotiating partner with a care delivery system, whether that's an MA plan, whether that's a hospital system, or whether that's a group of primary care docs, to be a partner with them. And I've got the flexibility within my system to have people be treated in any of those settings where they need to be. And some SNFs today do feature that kind of integration, but many don't, which will make this a really dynamic period for them. You did mention a little bit about MA and hospice, and that's something that's exciting and new, which is there are now the opportunity to carve in hospice care to MA plans. Previously, that was a completely separate benefit. And so this will be, I think this is a really underused benefit something that families and seniors at that point in their life, that's what they want more than having more procedures done, being in an institutional setting and so forth. And this will, I think, enable more use of that tool or more use of that service, I should say, because it's now going to be a tool of MA plans. Andrew, as we discuss stakeholders in the value economy, I'd really like to get your thoughts on the pharmaceutical industry, especially as it pertains to COVID-19. One major success of the year was the impressive and record-breaking development of several COVID-19 vaccines, due in part to the efforts of Operation Warp Speed. Despite the expedited timeline, confidence in the COVID-19 vaccine has been rising, and with it, public confidence in the industry. While burgeoning interest in outcomes-based pricing was largely overshadowed by the immediate needs of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, as a growing number of people received the vaccine, and the biopharmaceutical industry experiences a boost in public sentiment, broader implementation of value-based pricing and purchasing models for drugs and devices may be more plausible in 2021 than it has been in the past. Further, recent changes to the Medicaid drug rebate program have removed barriers and which previously made it difficult for manufacturers and payers to negotiate drug prices. As new life-saving medical technologies emerge, including advances in gene therapy, value-based pricing could help to ensure the expense of their innovations does not limit their application, especially as hospitals grapple with a reduction in operating budget. So the speed of the vaccine rollout, not just in research and development, but in regulatory response, also bodes well for future innovation. Pharmaceutical manufacturers have played a significant role in COVID-19 response and have garnered the attention and appreciation of the public. How can they now use this momentum to advance value in the coming year? 
It's a great question. Yes, they they do have, I think, a, just a great regard in, in the eyes of the public and well-deserved. It is truly amazing how science has advanced in such a short period of time. And we should also really applaud the, the regulatory environment at the FDA to be partners with them in doing so many of the steps of development and approval simultaneously to get us to where we are. So that, that's fantastic. I think it's possible to capitalize on that movement, on, on that momentum, I should say. I'm not sure we're going to see a ton of innovation there. I'm not sure that enough has changed with the pharmaceutical company business model incentives to see dramatic change yet. But that said, there are some examples out there, value-based payment models around drugs, and I think we're off to a, a beginning. But I don't think it's going to be where the nexus of the change in innovation is. Andrew, one of the big trends that we're seeing that will impact value-based care in the future is the rise of so-called payviders. Obviously, you know, for our listeners out there that haven't heard this term, this is where insurance companies partner with or buy medical groups and other providers. So it seems like the line between providers and payers is getting blurrier and blurrier over the course of time with major payers taking significant positions in the provider space. Such deals exploded in 2020, a trend that we'll likely continue to see in this current year. I'm thinking that this won't bode well for hospitals, as these deals usually entail managing patients' costs using global budgets. That means keeping them out of the most expensive settings, namely anything involving a hospital. So the pay-biter model is really taking hold with health plans, looking to collaborate with provider organizations to help ensure a seamless cash flow. Organizations like Geisinger and Kaiser Permanente have successfully executed such a model for quite some time, and more healthcare organizations are moving into the pay-biter space through acquisitions like CVS Health and Aetna. You have investments like Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Minnesota and North Memorial Health or partnerships like Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Rhode Island and Oak Street. And Anthem is also venturing into the payvider space by partnering with Aurora Health in Wisconsin and Nova Health in Virginia and Texas Health Resources in Texas to create payviders for each specific marketplace. So, Andrew, how do you think the trend towards payvider models that involve deep formal collaboration between a payer and a provider organization will impact value-based care and full clinical and claims data transparency? So we see an increased amount of this, as, as you point out, and I think it's good for value that it's happening. You see payers who are feeling exposed without provider assets that they own, and you see providers, many of the payviders that we know who are provider-centric have had those plans for a long time, Spectrum Health, uh, Geisinger, Intermountain. But those organizations are beginning to use those payers in more sophisticated um, and aggressive ways. Historically, you have the tail and you have the dog, and the dog was the delivery system, and the payer was the tail, and it got wagged, and it wasn't the other way around. But we're seeing some of these payviders, some of these integrated health systems that own payers, put much more capability into the payer assets that they have, and that's exciting because I think it will make them very legitimate competitors in a value-based payment environment if, if they can continue to shift focus and emphasis there. And that's going to be an organizationally and culturally difficult thing to do for organizations that have so much of their revenue, employee base, 
and their leadership history is more focused on a delivery system orientation. But I do think we're seeing some exciting changes there in, in how those payer assets are being used by providers. And of course, we're also seeing payers by providers, which really does solve some of those business interest misalignments that have been obstacles to this point. I suspect we'll continue to see some failures just because it's not just having the right strategy doesn't mean you're going to execute it well. And it it will have to do with execution and it will have to do with market opportunity and how strong of a competitive set you're fighting against to get lives. But one of the things that providers will have going for them is people tend to, people meaning consumers, tend to put a lot of emphasis on the brand and attach a lot of meaning to the brand of a provider less so with payers. And there are also a number of companies out there now who can enable and support providers in standing up these plans. So perhaps with those two advantages, we'll see some more success as providers seek to stand up plans. We've been perpetually underfunding the public health sector for decades, not just in Congress, but at the state level as well. And President-elect Joe Biden recently selected Dr. Rochelle Walensky to run the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention when his administration takes office in the next few days. And she's signaling that the new administration will take a stronger position in viewing public health as an asset. The restoration of confidence in science and public health within the government may bring about a dramatic reemergence of the public health system. Do you foresee policy changes that will make a longer-term sustainable investment in public health in the Biden administration? Since the most important objective of value-based care is about keeping people healthy and public health funding is crucial to addressing social determinants of health, do you think public health will now get the full seat at the table that it so rightly deserves. This is something that I know Levitt Partners is very intimately involved with. And so really curious how you think the increased focus on public health will change the conversation around population health and where do the two converge? It's a really important area of exploration. And there are some parts of my response to your question that that are, I think, rather certain and some parts that are highly uncertain. Let me start with the certain parts. We are already seeing more public health funding happening, but it is mostly related to COVID. So when we get beyond the emergency phase of this pandemic, will we continue to see elevated levels of public health funding? That's the uncertain part. Another certainty, we know that this administration is going to be more disposed to reliance on public health and funding of public health. So that's a certainty. But these changes, the system we have today was built up over a long period of time and changing the mix of medical care, clinical care relative to public health investment is not something that happens, in my view, quickly. And so if we're fortunate, what we will see when we get beyond the moment of the emergency we'll see a return of a focus to chronic disease and to public health associated with helping people manage their health over a long period of time using all of the public health points of emphasis that we've historically had and more funding going to states to do that and more incentives inside of managed Medicaid plans and inside of capitated care contracts to address those same things. And if we, if we end up seeing that, then this administration, this four-year period will have, you know, taking us, I think, a meaningful distance towards more balance in our system. 
which as you point out is sorely needed. So if we look back a decade ago to a pandemic that was far less serious, we have an example and that was the H1N1 pandemic. And at that time, just as today, we saw that our public health infrastructure was ineffective or insufficient to address the pandemic. And we didn't really capitalize on that and to make meaningful changes in our public health infrastructure. This pandemic is different than 2009. It's orders of magnitude more severe in terms of loss of life and impact on society. And so we might hope that one of the silver linings here is that we we will see some pivot, some change that we didn't see in 2000 as a consequence of 2009 in how we organize a structure to monitor and to address public health in, in meaningful ways. So, Andrew, let's talk about actual performance results with these APMs, starting with the MSSP. So in 2019, the seventh year of the program, MSSP ACOs collectively reduced Medicare expenditures by over $2.6 billion compared to the program's benchmark spending goal. After paying out shared savings bonuses to successful ACOs and collecting share losses from unsuccessful risk-bearing ACOs, CMS realized a net savings of roughly $1.2 billion, which was up from the $740 million the prior year and matching the CBO's expectations for 2019, which is the obviously the most current reporting year that's available. So the savings to CMS generated by the MSSP continues a positive trend and overall shows how the MSSP is reducing healthcare costs throughout the program lifespan. But unfortunately, the same cannot be said for CMMI APMs. Both CMS Administrator Seema Verma and CMMI Director Brad Smith have expressed dissatisfaction with the performance of the center's APMs portfolio to date. While its reach is impressive, their models you know, serve over 26 million patients alone. CMMI APMs are not producing the necessary financial and quality impacts to justify expanding most of those pilots. For example, of CMMI's 54 total models, only five have ever produced statistically significant savings. So Andrew, what is your take on this lackluster result with CMMI? And what does this mean to continued support of the federal government towards value-based care? So I'll go back to an example I invoked earlier, which is electrification of vehicles. And I'll add one to it, which is solar energy. If you look at the first vehicles that came out, they had terrible range and they were not mechanically dependable. When you look at the efficiency of solar cells in their infancy, they couldn't compete with traditional forms of fossil fuel energy. But innovation happens and change improves. And I have no doubt that that's what's going to happen. There's a lot of toe dipping that's gone on in the industry. And toe dipping really isn't a recipe for transformation. And yet I don't blame organizations for toe dipping because toe dipping is how you begin to learn and begin to take note of the kinds of organizational changes that will need to be made. I view us in a process of change here, and we're going to learn a ton of things through experimentation, and that is just, that's what we should expect. However, I do think we're going to need to be more aggressive about participation in order to get more than toe dipping to happen. I know that there have been some calls out there for more mandatory models, In fact, the last Democratic administration we had had just moved a whole bunch of bundled payment 
experiments to mandatory models before the election happened. And right after that, those models under then-Secretary Price were reversed and made optional. So uh, we need to be sending a clear signal from policymakers to the market that this is a journey we are going on. And then where we have good evidence to suggest that it's better for patients and achievable for providers, we need to make models mandatory. And I expect we'll see some of that. Andrew, thank you so much for providing your in-depth policy expertise. As we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to revisit comments made by Governor Levitt about how healthcare industry leaders need to have situational awareness in forming a perspective on the value movement. He reminds us that we're only 25 years into a 40-year transition, and it takes time to fundamentally reform what amounts to 20% of our economy. In looking at history, it usually takes 35, 40 years for any large-scale transformation to take place, and this is really no different. Governor Levitt continues to provide us with a strong dose of reality by reminding us to stay the course in value. Provider organizations and other industry stakeholders, as we've discussed in this episode today, really have one of three choices, fight it and die, accept it and have a fighting chance, or lead it and prosper. As you reflect on the chaos of the world around us and the moral and economic imperatives we've talked about for delivering health value, how should the healthcare industry be thinking about value-based care in 2021 and beyond? And as our federal government looks to balance the needs for human compassion and global economic leadership, how can we ensure both the economic leadership and compassionate delivery of healthcare? You're right. I've heard that that message given over time, and and I believe it, and it characterizes, uh, and that there's a lot of evidence to support that we are on a long industry journey of transformation. But I think there's an increasing awareness outside of healthcare that this isn't just a healthcare journey. The, the medical industrial complex, as we know it, the healthcare industry that is such a big part of our economy is too big now to be thought of as separate from the economy and the future of, of our country's economic success and in, independent. So it needs to be more than the healthcare industry that can look beyond the short election cycles and the quarterly reporting cycles to say, what path are we on with the healthcare system, with the expectations of consumers, with the reimbursement policies? Because we now, more than ever, have major economic competition with other countries. China, of course, but many other countries as well. And in the past, we've been able to depend on our economic and our military superiority to sustain what is a really uncompetitive, non-competitive healthcare system. We can't rely on that going forward. We've got new currencies that are ar arising so that countries don't have to have U.S. dollars as part of their portfolio of investments. They'll have other options. And we have military competitors now that are becoming significant rivals. And so when you look at how much we spend on healthcare compared to what these other countries spend, there just isn't a viable economic leadership pathway for us if we don't fix this. And so I actually believe that what that's going to do as that becomes increasingly apparent is it's going to generate resolve to make the difficult transformation among our policy leaders at the state and federal level. And I think if President Biden serves two terms. I think it's going to be within these two terms that we actually see much of the significant change because 
what COVID has effectively done is fast forwarded a whole bunch of trends that already existed. And so I believe it's going to accelerate and really double down on everything that we're learning. I think over the next few years, we're going to see opportunities upstream from clinical care and the social determinants. Providers are going to get better at using data to manage populations. We're we're already continue to see a lot of virtual technology innovations. And I think the combination of all of those things means a really vibrant transformation opportunity for the country. But I think that's what lies ahead for us. And it's going to be an exciting time to be involved. And I just want to say, I really appreciate what WGU is doing with the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, because there need to be places where organizations can learn from one another. So thank you for that. And thanks for having me on today. Andrew, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. We've really enjoyed having you. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us today in the Race to Value. And the partnership between the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative and Levitt Partners is such an important one. And we're so grateful to work with you and your team. And we appreciate your time and thoughtful analysis today. I know our listeners this week are really going to benefit in thinking about the future of value-based care. Thank you for saying that. I like what you're doing over there. And I hope we can continue to support. That's such a big area. And uh, I'm just really impressed. WGU has wanted for a long time to make some of these investments. And it's really cool to see it actually happening. So keep it going. Well done. And let's, uh, let's stay in close touch.